Thank you. As we come to God's word, let me pray. Thou whose almighty word chaos and darkness heard and took their flight. Father, thank you for the power and the strength and the clarity of your word. Thank you that it does shine into our hearts and show us what we're really like. We pray humbly this morning that you would do that work that only you can do. Please uh, show us more clearly what we're like. Show us our lives. But please show us more of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Incline our hearts to him, that we might live for him this week. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, please take your seats. And if you would turn back with me to the reading we had from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6, page 1034 in the Church Bibles. 1034. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Well, I wonder, how do you treat people you don't want to love? That was the question that faced uh, the mother of stabbing victim, Abigail Witchells. Uh, Some of you may remember the story. Back on the 25th of April, 2005, in the village of Little Bookham in Surrey, Abigail Witchells was stabbed in the neck as she took her son Joseph home from school. You may remember. Abigail's mother has since written that she has forgiven Abigail's attacker, a guy called Richard Kazali, who committed suicide after the attack. In an article written for the Catholic newspaper The Tablet, she described her enormous sadness at Kazali's suicide, explaining that she was sad for him and for his family that his life came to such a sudden end. Well, how do you treat people you don't want to love? According to Abigail Witchell's mother, you forgive them. Forgiveness. It's very powerful, isn't it? But could you have done that? Could I have done that? If that was your child who'd been attacked, would you have been so quick to forgive? See, how do you treat people you don't want to love? Now, of course, the case of Abigail Witchell's is an extreme one, and I'd be surprised if any of you are facing that this morning. But maybe it's still a live question for you today. Maybe you've come to church this morning, and you know there's somebody in your life who is hurting you very badly. You've come and you're churning inside because you know this person's making your life so difficult. Maybe you're not angry, but you know that there's someone whom God has asked you to love, but you're, just, you're really struggling to. Perhaps a family member or a work colleague. You know God wants you to love them, but somehow you just can't. And you're asking the question, how can I go on loving this person? And I'm sure that all of us, don't we, have people in life whom we just find it quite hard to get on with. You know, people who are different from us. People who are perhaps quite high maintenance or, or just a bit annoying. We all know people like that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're here and you don't think you have any enemies or, or you don't struggle at all. Well, that's great. But I'm sure that you will at some point. So you see, we all need to know the answer. How do we treat people whom we don't want to love? And it's important that we know the answer because... In this area, isn't it true that we're ruled so much by our emotions? See, just picture for a moment, if you will, the person in your life uh, that you're struggling to love. Just think of them right now. And think of the next time that you'll see them, maybe this week. Because I guarantee that that, at that time, uh, you will not feel like loving them. And so if you're going to love them then, 
if I'm going to act lovingly uh, in the week, what we need to know now, in the cold light of a Sunday morning, how to treat them. So how do we treat people we don't want to love? Well, as we come to the Bible this morning, we, we see what Jesus says on this answer. We read how he answers that question. And it is as surprising as it is uncompromising. Look down with me at verse 27. Jesus says, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Love your enemies. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Love your enemies. Well, well, who are they? Who are your enemies, according to this passage? Well, of course, there are various reasons, aren't there, in our lives, why we find it hard to love people. People, you know, have have issues with us for all kinds of reasons. And one such reason can be our faith. People object to us being Christians and give us a hard time for it. And Jesus says, in the context of this passage, that that is normal. That is normal Christian experience. See, look down again at verse 22, just before our passage. Verse 22. Do you see, we saw it last week. One of the marks of being in Jesus' kingdom, one of the blessings of being in his kingdom, is being persecuted. That's topsy-turvy, isn't it? We don't think like that. One of the marks of blessings is to be persecuted. So, of course, that raises an obvious question. If you're following Jesus and you're getting a hard time for it, well, how do you treat people, those people who are, who are persecuting you? But maybe you're here today and that's not you. You're, you're, you're getting a hard time from people, but, but maybe not because of your faith. Well, these verses still apply. They still apply. And they answer the question, as followers of Jesus, how should we treat people we don't want to love? And to all of us who claim to follow him, Jesus tells it straight. And here's the point this morning. If you would follow Jesus, you must love your enemies. If you would follow Jesus, you must love your enemies. That's the point this morning. And in these verses, Jesus appeals to us that that if we follow him, loving our enemies like this is not only the right thing, but the best thing that we could do. And he does it by making three appeals. Firstly, he appeals to our wills. Secondly, to our minds. And thirdly and lastly, he appeals to our hearts. So let's follow these three appeals. Firstly then, Jesus appeals to our wills. To our wills. He says, love your enemies, firstly, unconditionally. Love your enemies, firstly, unconditionally. This is verses 28 to 31, if you're taking notes. You see, what kind of love does loving our enemies involve? Well, in a word, unconditional love. That is, love that gives and cares and goes on giving without any expectation of reward. Love that goes on loving without depending on whether it's loved in return. Unconditional love. I think that's the key to the summary in verse 31, often called the golden rule. Uh, Do to others uh, as you would have them do to you. Now, of course, what we all need is to be loved unconditionally, isn't it? That's what our hearts cry out for, and it's what we need. Well, it's unconditional love that we're to show to others. Love your enemies unconditionally, Jesus says. And so he he takes the principle of unconditional love and then applies it to three scenarios, to different scenarios in verses 29 and 30. Uh, Notice with me that there's insult in verse 29. 
See that there? If somebody strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, what does that mean? Simply this. If you follow Jesus, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. However tempting it might be, it's not so much the mode of attack as the principle that matters here. So the attack doesn't just have to be physical, you know, someone slapping you around the face. No, attack comes in many different forms, doesn't it? It might be the the snide remark, the patronising put-down, or that mocking attitude that, that is so destructive. And Jesus says, if you follow me, whenever you encounter insult, you're not to retaliate. By the way, this verse in passing doesn't say that justice isn't important or that all Christians should be pacifists. Some Christians have read this verse and taken that view. Our second reading from Romans chapter 13 makes it very clear that the state, the law of the land, is God's agent of wrath for the wrongdoer. The law should always be upheld. But there's a difference between the functions of national law and the responsibilities of personal godliness. Jesus is saying, don't take the law into your own hands. If you're insulted, don't retaliate. See, if you would love Jesus, you must love your enemies unconditionally. Delve into this picture a little further with me, if you will. Turning the other cheek. It suggests, doesn't it, gentleness. Sustained vulnerability. A lack of defensiveness. In fact, the word turn in verse 26 is better translated offer. Offer. It's the language of giving, isn't it? Here is love that that keeps on giving to its attacker. And of course, Jesus did that himself, didn't he? A bit later on in, in, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes that when Jesus was insulted, well, he didn't retaliate. You see, we're to be like him. We must love our enemies unconditionally. Even if they insult us, we're not to retaliate. Here is the Christian professional who's being slagged off by his colleagues, but who carries on being gracious to them. Here is the Christian pupil at school who's being taunted for being in the God squad, but he refuses to to hit back. You see, love your enemies unconditionally. Even if they insult you, don't stop loving them. Well, that's insult. Then Jesus moves on to theft. See that in verse 29. He says, if somebody takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Well, again, what does Jesus mean? Well, as Don Carson has said, it's not the clothes, but the principle that matters. And what's the principle here? Well, it's simply this. If we follow Jesus, we're to be those who are above demanding our rights. Don't demand your rights. This isn't immediately obvious from the text, but the cloak refers to the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law states that no Israelite could take the cloak of a widow. So in other words, even if she had nothing else, she had a basic right to warmth and comfort that no one could take away. Jesus, of course, isn't opposed to that. He cares for the vulnerable. But he's saying that if you follow him, you ought to be above demanding your rights. Because following him may mean giving them up, especially when it comes to loving our enemies. That's a big challenge, isn't it? Because don't we live in a world that that loves not only to remind us of our rights, but, but but encourages us to demand them at every turn? 
So we're told, aren't we, that children have rights, uh, women have rights, the disabled have rights, single parents have rights. And if things go wrong, aren't we encouraged to demand our rights? This can get quite silly. I heard yesterday of a a chair manufacturer who was being taken to court by a, a pregnant lady because the chair that she sat on had collapsed under her weight. You see, we have rights, society says, and we're encouraged to demand those rights. But Jesus says, well, when it comes to things going wrong, you ought to be above demanding your rights. You see, you might have a right to complain, but love is to take priority. Be above demanding your rights. If you would follow Jesus, then you must love your enemies unconditionally, even if that means letting go of your rights. Well, that's theft. Then Jesus moves on again to need, another scenario. Look down at verse 30. Jesus says, Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, I remember when I lived in London, uh, one of my old flatmates uh, once came into my room and asked me uh, for £200. He ran out of money, uh, and uh, he asked me if I could lend him some. Now, he hasn't given that money back, uh, and it raises the question, well, what should I do as a Christian? What about if somebody takes something of yours without asking? Again, that happened to me just the other week. I walked into my office and found that one of my commentaries had gone missing. Whoever it was, I don't know, perhaps the ministry trainees, uh, had uh, had walked off with it. Uh, By the way, if anyone sees a BST commentary on 1 Corinthians lying around, do throw it in my direction. (laughs) But as a Christian, if that happens to me, well, how should I respond? Well, remember the principle, unconditional love. And the big point, I think, is this. Christians are to be those who are generous, uh, who are giving, uh, not stingy and possessive. So if somebody needs something, well, we're to give it. If somebody takes something, well, then we're not to complain. But we're not just to give kind of, you know, willy-nilly, without thinking. No, Jesus calls us to be wise. I take an, an obvious example. I'm sure this has happened to you. It's happened to me many times. When you're in town and a beggar comes up to you and asks for money. Well, does that mean that we should just give money, uh, you know, without thinking? Well, we all know the general principle, don't we? It's probably not wise to to give them money. Um, It's probably not loving, as chances are it will go to fund a drug habit or, or a drink habit. But isn't the problem that we so often use that as an excuse not to do anything? Some of you know that I was in New York in April, and uh, this happened to me uh, one evening. I I was walking past um, Grand Central Station, and I walked past a beggar on the street. And as I walked past, I thought, you know, it's probably not wise that I I give him anything. And I felt quite relieved, because I felt, well, no, you know, I don't really need to help him. It's probably not the wisest thing to do. And then I stopped, and I thought, well, hang on, what, what does that say about my heart? The truth was, I felt quite pleased that I didn't need to help him. I thought, George, what a cold heart you've got. Can't you at least stop and talk? Isn't that what Jesus would have done? And so I did. You see, this is a question, not of what we do so much, but it's a question of our hearts. Because what we do reveals our hearts. See, do you have a generous heart? A heart that is kind of bent naturally towards giving. Or do we have cold hearts that, that draw back and that excuse selfishness under the guise of expediency? You know, it's just easier 
not to be generous. Because if we have generous hearts, well then, it'll be shame. Because we won't complain when people take things. You might have lent somebody something ages ago and never gotten it back. Well, Jesus says, don't go demanding it. Oh, you can ask politely if you need it, but if they don't give it, well, let it go. Let it go. That's what it means to love unconditionally. That's what it means to love our enemies. See, Jesus says, love your enemies unconditionally. He appeals to our wills. This is what we must do. Which which raises the question, if you're following Jesus today, if I am, are we doing this? Are we loving like this? Is there a particular person you need to change your attitude towards? And maybe you're here and you're not following Jesus yet. And you're weighing up whether you, whether you should or not. And you're asking, well, what will it mean for me to follow Jesus? Well, here's what it will mean. Love your enemies unconditionally. Love your enemies unconditionally. Well, there's our question. How do we treat people we don't want to love? Well, if you'd follow Jesus, you must love your enemies. Firstly, unconditionally. Well, maybe you're not persuaded. Maybe you think, oh, just, this just sounds so weak. You know, unconditional love, all this talk of kind of love and stuff, it, it's just a bit pathetic. It just, look, just feels so kind of, so weak. A sign of weakness. You know, a good bit of old British retribution never did anybody any harm. Well, isn't that what everybody thinks? You see, in the eyes of the world, loving like this can seem weak. It can seem a sign of weakness. But in the eyes of the Lord Jesus, loving our enemies is the best thing that we can do. And to convince us, Jesus secondly appeals to our minds. He says, you've got to think. If you're going to love like this, you've got to think. Secondly, he says, love your enemies because... It's more praiseworthy. Love your enemies because, secondly, it's more praiseworthy. It's more praiseworthy. This is verses 32 to 35. Loving unconditionally isn't a sign of weakness. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Jesus here draws a comparison between those who, who follow him and those who don't. And he knows that the norm for people who don't follow him, whom he calls sinners, uh, the norm for them is to only love people who will love them back. You know, only to do good to people who will return the favour. Uh, but for those who would follow him, well, Jesus says, that's not enough. You've got to do more. Uh, you've got to love people who don't love you. Because it's more praiseworthy. It, it's more, it, it gives you more credit, to use the word that Jesus uses. It's more praiseworthy. Why? Well, well, just think about with me the the alternative to unconditional love. Uh, That is, the love that sinners practice, the love that Jesus describes. uh, Love that only does uh, does good and loves to people who will love them back. You know, the kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that kind of thing. Well, there's no credit to you if you love like that, is there? Because on one level, that isn't really love. Because, you see, conditional love says that, well, actually, at the end of the day, I'm more important than you are. So the moment that your love stops benefiting me, I'm going to turn away from you and stop loving you. Now, that's not love, is it? That's selfishness. And there's nothing praiseworthy about selfishness. And Jesus says, well, anybody can be selfish, but if you follow me, you must go further and love your enemies. Love your enemies because it's more praiseworthy. It's impressive. 
there's something wonderfully attractive about it. Uh, this kind of love is so attractive, actually, that, that only God can bring it about. One of my favourite Christians is the African evangelist Stephen Lungu. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, come across Stephen Lungu. Uh, he was a, an evangelist. He was born in Zimbabwe uh, and uh, abandoned by his mother when he was a baby. And he went astray and, and lived on the streets of Zimbabwe, becoming a terrorist. He joined a, a terrorist group called the Black Shadows. You can read about it in his biography, Out of the Black Shadows. And, and later on, he was wonderfully converted at the evangelistic tent mission that he and his friends had gone to blow up. He was converted at that mission that he was going to blow up. And he became a famous evangelist, preaching forgiveness. Now later, he had a crisis He realised that he was preaching God's forgiveness, but he'd never forgiven his mother, who had abandoned him. And he continues in his biography, he says this, I cried to God to heal me of all the wounds that the rejection and loneliness and fears of my childhood had caused me. I wanted to forgive my mother completely and let go of this burden of pain. God, I wept, I must forgive her. How can I ever preach again about your love and forgiveness unless I do? On the third day, I had a strange and marvellous experience. I suddenly felt that God was lifting the weight of hate and resentment from me, as I couldn't do it myself. I felt the bitterness give way to compassionate feelings for a helpless old woman. I saw my mother as if from God's viewpoint, a poor, helpless, hurting soul. And I could love her now. My inner healing was at last becoming complete. I was no longer an emotional cripple. See, to love your mum who's abandoned you is a beautiful thing. But it's so beautiful that only God can do it. And of course that's a special case. God God can do it straight away. Often it takes years. But you get the point. Only God can do this. Only God can change our hearts so that we love like this. And it means that if, again, if we follow Christ, then we need to ask ourselves, do we know anything of this? Do we know anything of it? Are our relationships different to those of our our non-Christian friends. Following Jesus should make us better spouses, better work colleagues, better better workers. Are we known as those who are kind and generous? Or or those uh, those who hold grudges and have favourites? What about us as a church? Can we reach out to those who who are not like us, who are not affluent, the poor, the marginalised, those who can't love us back? Can we take the gospel to them? And if we can't, perhaps it's because we've never considered the beauty of unconditional love. Love that should mark out those who follow Christ because, well, it supremely marks out him. You see, maybe you've never, you've never investigated the life of Jesus. You see, love just poured out of him. Jesus shines with the beauty of unconditional love. He spent his time loving the unlovely. See, maybe you don't know what it is to have your heart transformed like this. Well, if so, maybe it's because you've never truly started to follow the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church for years, but you've never known this this heart transformation. Because we'll never be able to love like this until we start to follow Jesus. So then, Jesus appeals to our minds. He says, think, love your enemies, because secondly, it's more praiseworthy. It's more praiseworthy. But maybe you're still unconvinced. You understand that you've got to love your enemies, and you now know what it should look like. You see that it's more praiseworthy. In fact, something in you longs to do it. 
but you think it's just too hard. It's too hard. There's someone in my life who is just too unlovely. Well, we need a powerful motivation if we're going to live like this. And Jesus gives us one by thirdly appealing to our hearts. He says, thirdly, love your enemies by living for heaven. Living for heaven. Love your enemies by living for heaven, thirdly. See, there's no more powerful motivation uh, than heaven. How does that help? Well, notice in verse 35, uh, for the follower of Jesus, there is a heavenly reward. He says, love your enemies, then your reward will be great. Now, notice the logic of the verse. If we're going to lend uh, to our enemies without getting anything back, well, we need to know that we won't lose out in the end. And heaven, our heavenly reward, makes sure that we won't. How? Well, we don't earn our reward. It's not like some kind of heavenly slot machine whereby the more coins you put in down here, the more money, prize money, you get up there. No, we can never be worthy of our heavenly reward. But, But if we've trusted in Christ, well, then he's already given us all the riches of heaven. They're ours. How foolish then if we ignore them and pretend that our earthly things are are more precious. You see, if we think about our heavenly treasure, our heavenly reward, well then we'll be able to give away our earthly treasure if we need to. Because we always hold on to what is most dear to us. Isn't that true for you? Certainly true for me. So if what is most dear to me is my house, my car, my job, well then I'll never be able to give them up if Jesus asks asks me to. But if what is more dear to me is Christ, is the beauty of him, is the the wonder of being like him, if what thrills my heart more than anything in the world is the thought of being with him, and if the thought of owning him is better than owning all the treasures of the world, well well then do you see, I'm liberated to give away those other things. If we love Christ, well then we'll be able to give away our other things if we need to. You see, do you know this morning what treasure awaits you if you're following Christ? Do you know? We heard it last week, uh, maybe you were here, uh, when Tim, uh, Tim Davies preached. Do you remember that wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis? He says, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Uh, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased, says Lewis. You see, are you struggling to love somebody in your life this morning? Am I? Might it be because we're clinging too much to our earthly treasure? Again, you see, it's a question of our hearts. If we love our things, most of all, well then we'll never have room in our hearts for anybody else. If we care too much about our reputations, well then we'll be selfish. And the only antidote to that is is to think about heaven and and look forward to it, treasure it, find your satisfaction there. Love your enemies by living for heaven, Jesus says. Think about your reward, your heavenly reward. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, think on your heavenly model. You see, Christian, you ought to love like this because ultimately the God that you follow is like this. Your Father and so when you love like this, you, you, you feel like bear the family likeness. You, you show that you're truly part of the family. You show that you're modelling your father who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You see, that's a great motivation. 
But it raises a question as we close. You see, does Jesus really have the right to tell us to live like this? Maybe you're thinking, Jesus, you just don't know what it's like. I can't love my enemy. How how dare you you ask me to speak to to do this? Maybe you're you're still weighing up whether to follow him. And you think, what, what right do you have, Jesus, to tell me to live like this? Well, he has the right to tell us to live like this because he lived like this. He lived like this. 17 chapters later on in Luke, as he hung on a cross, dying, being mocked, being insulted by his killers, do you know what his last words were? He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. See, can I urge you, if you're thinking about Christ, don't, don't run away from a Christ like this. A Christ who practices what he preaches. Don't run away from him. Embrace him. Maybe you are a follower of Christ and, and you're, you're struggling to love someone. Well, can I ask you, as I close, to remember how God has treated you. Remember how Jesus has treated you. Remember that, that you and I are ungrateful. God goes on giving to us day by day, yet, yet we don't give him the, the honour that he deserves. We're ungrateful. And yet, he's loved us unconditionally. Again, do you doubt it? We'll, we'll think on, on 17 chapters later when the man who tells us to love our enemies dies in the place of his enemies. You and I. You see, you might be very angry with someone who's hurt you. Well, think of this, that, that God has every reason to be as angry at you and at me than we will ever be at anyone else. And he's forgiven us completely. It's all gone. Will we let that kind of love melt our hearts? That kind of unconditional love that is right at the heart of God? Doesn't that motivate us this morning? Excite us, move us to love our enemies? If we truly understand what Jesus did for us at the cross, then we can't help but love our enemies because we'll be transformed. And if this morning you cannot love your enemy, might it be that you've never truly grasped just how much God has forgiven you? Well, back to our opening question. Just picture that person again that you're struggling to love. How will you treat them? Well, if you would follow Jesus, you must love your enemies. How? Unconditionally. Why? Because it's more praiseworthy. How? By living for heaven. Let's pray. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Heavenly Father, we're amazed again at your mercy to us and yet challenged by your words to us this morning to love our enemies. Uh, We pray that you would help us this week. Please, we pray, we go from here being uh, motivated by our heavenly reward uh, and the amazing unconditional love that you've shown each one of us at the cross. Please melt our hearts with that kind of love, we pray, so that we might honour you by loving those in our lives this week. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a wonderful old hymn now that picks up the theme. You see, we'll never learn to love unconditionally until we appreciate how much we've been loved. And we see that love at the cross. Love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all.
Let's sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.